Welcome to the California Appellate Podcast, a discussion of timely trial tips and the latest cases and news coming from the California Court of Appeal and the California Supreme Court. And now your hosts, Tim Cole and Jeff Lewis. Welcome, everyone. I am Jeff Lewis. And I'm Tim Kowal. Both Jeff and I are certified appellate specialists and uncertified podcast co-hosts. We try to bring our audience of trial attorneys and appellate attorneys some news and insights they can use in their practice. If you find this podcast helpful, please recommend it to a colleague. Yes, and a quick thank you to our podcast sponsor, CaseTex. CaseTex is a legal research tool that harnesses AI and a lightning-fast interface to help lawyers find case authority fast. I've been a CaseTex subscriber since 2019, and I highly endorse their service. Listeners of our podcast will receive a 25% lifetime discount available to them if they sign up at casetex.com slash calp. That's casetex.com slash C-A-L-P. Okay, and we're back with another episode of new cases for your attorney toolkit. We're going to talk about a couple of cases today, one involving the topic of motions for summary judgments. Are evidentiary rulings in deciding a motion for summary judgment reviewed under the same deferential abuse of discretion standard? as evidentiary rulings at the trial stage, or might they be reviewed under the more uh, under the de novo standard of review? Well, a recent published case lays out the split of authority on that subject following the Supreme Court's opening up the can of worms in its Reed versus Google decision back in 2010, but it kind of closes the door on the possibility and suggests that, that it's going to be abuse of discretion. But it is an issue teed up for a Supreme Court review. We'll talk about that decision. And we'll also discuss a recent case involving attachment orders in elder abuse suits. Namely, can you get an attachment in an elder abuse case? The answer is maybe, but not based on statutory penalties. So the attachment order in this case we'll talk about had to be reversed. All right. So the first case we're going to talk about, Doe versus Software One. The question is, can you get a reversal on appeal based on the trial court's improper rulings on evidence? Ever since the Supreme Court's holding in Reed versus Google, Inc. in 2010, practitioners have been waiting and watching carefully to see if a trend of more rigorous review of evidentiary rulings might emerge, at least in the context of motions for summary judgment. Reed had applied de novo review rather than abuse of discretion, where there were evidentiary objections made at summary judgment and where the trial court had failed to rule on them. As the Supreme Court in Reed had noted, it is hard to know if the trial court abused its discretion if it didn't exercise any. So that's how it came to the conclusion of reviewing them de novo. So supporters of that more rigorous standard of review have been disappointed in subsequent years that despite Reed, every appellate district seems to have been issuing published opinions distinguishing Reed for one reason or another and applying the abuse of discretion standard instead to evidentiary rulings on at the MS. SJ stage. In fact, there are only two published cases since Reed that have applied the de novo standard. They are Pipitone versus Williams, a 2016 case. We'll put links to all cases referenced in the podcast in the show notes. And the other case applying the de novo standard of review since Reed is Alexander versus Scripps Memorial Hospital, La Jolla, a 2018 case. And that is an abuse of discretion standard is the standard that was applied in the recent case of Doe versus Software One Inc. It's a fourth district division three case, October 2022. It is a published opinion. The court decided to publish it after after a non-party requested publication that a non-party happened to be yours truly. The court distinguished Reed and applied the abuse of discretion standard to evidentiary rulings connected with the motion for summary judgment. The fourth district noted that, quote, the weight of authority since Reed supports application of the abuse of discretion standard, and the court specifically appointed to the volume of objections raised. There were nearly 100 pages worth of objections. 
The court noted this quantity, well, this quantity is not unusual for a motion for summary judgment. And the court noted that we recognize that it has become common practice for litigants to flood the trial courts with inconsequential written evidentiary objections without focusing on those that are critical. My comment on this, Jeff, was that that's a completely valid observation that the court made, but I still had misgivings about treating hearsay objections as discretionary. Now, uh, I don't know about you. When, when I was in law school, uh, my evidentiary exam was multiple choice and the bar exam had evidentiary, had multiple choice questions on hearsay. It's either hearsay or it's not. It's not subject to good lawyering. The better approach, in my view, would be for the appellate courts to treat this issue as one of waiver. If you bombard the court with a hundred pages of objections and you don't follow up with them at the hearing and say, your honor, I need to know how the court rules on my objections as to this critical material fact, then I think it's fair for the Court of Appeal and the trial court to deem those objections as having been waived. 470-437C, in fact, requires that the objections be raised orally at the hearing. And uh, so if the, if the trial attorney fails to do that, then I think rather than de-escalating the standard of review from de novo to abuse of discretion, couldn't the court get the same result by finding that the objections were waived? Yeah, interesting. Uh, once again, let me say I agree and disagree with you on the issue of waiver. Yeah, if you only have 20 minutes to argue a case and you feel like an evidentiary issue is important, you could spend some of your 20 minutes arguing specific evidentiary objections as a specific evidence as a way of preserving that issue and helping your assistance on in terms of appellate review. But I have to say on a practical level, I've been doing this over 20 years, I don't recall ever succeeding on an appeal involving an evidentiary objection that was wrongly decided and changed the outcome of an appeal. So it's kind of interesting of, in terms of which standard of review applies, but they're both big hills that are impossible to overcome in my experience. Well, you may be right, but even if I grant that point, that it may not make a difference if uh, even if the court were to find, yes, the court found that, that this was hearsay when it was really not hearsay or vice versa. You know, we go to the second question of whether this was prejudicial to the case. Why not just decide on that second prong rather than turning evidentiary calls on black and white evidentiary issues into factor based or uh, discretionary calls? Yeah, yeah, that's a fair point. And, you know, I think in the times that I've had appellate courts rule on the propriety of evidentiary objections, the ultimate outcome has been either it was harmless or not necessary for the court's determination. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes evidentiary calls are are hard to make, but you always wind up having to do that second step. Was this evidence really that important? Did it really turn the tables? And usually the answer is no. And then you have to move on to a preponderance of the evidence. There were so many wrong evidentiary calls that that would have changed the whole yeah. I mean, let me say with the exception of maybe the parole evidence rule, which I've dealt with quite a bit on appeals, with the exception of that, which is more substantive than evidentiary. If you're an appellate lawyer and you're drafting an opening brief around evidentiary objections, you should be having a long conversation with the client about the odds of winning or losing that appeal. Well, that's right. Okay, let's go to the next case. This is Royals versus Lou. This is the case where we, that talks about attachment orders in the context of an elder abuse case. So in the case of Royals versus Lou, a July 2022 published opinion, a nonagenarian's new 35 years junior wife started liquidating his assets. And when she got wind of this, the daughter, Lisa Royals, intervened. And in her resulting lawsuit, not only did she allege almost $1.1 million in financial elder abuse, 
She also sought a writ of attachment for statutory penalties and attorney's fees three times that amount. And despite the requirement that attachments be based on retrospective relief rather than prospective debts, the trial court granted the motion and issued a $3.4 million attachment order in that case. The First District Court of Appeal reversed. Royals' pleadings and affidavit were, quote, unclear about what justified an attachment amount of more than three times the actual damages that Royals pleaded on information and belief, end quote. And after the appellate court's request for supplemental briefing on that point, the court found that Royals' elusiveness was troubling. The court held that seeking damages based on penalties and punitive damages or in an open-ended way to justify an inflated damages award cannot satisfy the attachment statutes. There was also an interesting procedural quirk in this case because the trial court had actually ordered the attachment vacated, purportedly rendering the appeal moot. This was after the appeal had been filed. And after there there were some noises about the Court of Appeal probably not going to affirm that attachment order, the uh, royals had gone back to the trial court and asked for it to be vacated. And the trial court granted that request and vacated the attachment order. And then royals tried to go go and uh, get the appeal dismissed as moot. The court said, no way. A trial court cannot vacate an order once it's been appealed. So that was uh, I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it is interesting, as was your use of the word nonagenarian. I hadn't heard that term before. What does that mean? A 90-something person. A 90 Okay, got it. Great. Yeah, you know, attachment is kind of like per preliminary injunctions. Attachments are a quick way to end a lawsuit before it starts by tying up and starving the other side of funds they need to litigate the case. So it's not surprising to me that Court of Appeal kind of puts the brakes on overly aggressive, speculative damages calculations. The right result from my point of view. Yeah. Yeah, I thought so. Okay. One last case, uh, Jeff, you reminded me of this. I had uh, I had seen this. This is uh, Let Them Choose versus San Diego Unified School District, uh, issued just, just uh, the week before Thanksgiving, November 2022. It's a published opinion uh, out of the 4th District out of San Diego. We talked about this case actually uh, after it yeah. was after the appeal was first filed back in January of this year. We talked about this with Rick Jaffe uh, in episode 21 of the podcast. The trial court there enjoined the school district from imposing a vaccine, a COVID vaccine mandate <clears throat> on preclusion grounds. The trial court enjoined it on preclusion grounds, reasoning that the state's vaccine program preempted the field. And so if there was going to be any vaccine mandates, they had to come from the state who had already kind of uh, it's inserted itself into this area. And we see this, uh, we've seen this frequently in the federal context, but I hadn't personally seen it very much in the state context. The Court of Appeal did affirm the uh, the trial court's injunction of the order. So if there's going to be COVID school mandates, it has to come from state policy, not district by district. Apparently seems to be the upshot of let them choose. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I saw this. It came up in my Twitter feel, uh, feed. Twitter's still up and running, by the way. And I was surprised because a lot of uh, people who are, let's just say, against vaccines uh, had touted this somehow as a court striking down vaccine mandates when it was really just uh, striking down the idea of having a patchwork of different rules applying in different districts across the state and wanting uniformity of approaches to the vaccines. And so that's what caught my eye. Yeah, I haven't had a chance to read the opinion yet. It would be an interesting question. Generally, you like the idea of there of there being some flexibility based on region. If there is a region that doesn't have a lot of danger or a lot of cases of COVID or any particular disease going around, you might like some flexibility. But 
I wonder if the state can provide for that flexibility specifically. Maybe yeah, a lot a lot of cases were filed. One in particular that I'm aware of, Brack v. Newsom, that's still pending, I think before the Supreme Court's trying to decide whether to take review on that, made that very argument that districts are not fungible and some districts should uh, have more flexibility and attacked Governor Newsom for trying to overly mandate a one-size-fits-all approach to COVID. And ironically, this case says, uh, yeah, leave it up to the states. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It is a little bit uh, each side trying on the other's hat, right? Yeah. <laughs> the side who usually says, uh, let it go jurisdiction by jurisdiction is now saying it has to be one side fits all. Uh, now let them choose uh, the November 22nd decision. It'll be interesting to see if somebody uh, takes that up to the California Supreme Court or lets that so that's be the final word. Right. There was another interesting procedural tidbit in the Let Them Choose case. The Court of Appeal had granted the district's petition for supersedious, staying the injunction pending the appeal. So at least early on in the appeal, the, the Court of Appeal felt that the district's position was strong enough, presented substantial issues warranting a stay of that injunction. And I don't think in the interim there was, I believe, don't quote me on this, but I believe that the district had not was not requiring the, the vaccine during that time, that maybe it, it had stayed its own order or its own injunction. Huh. But I, I did think that was interesting. Sometimes when you see a court grant supersedious, tends, it may suggest that it's leaning with the appellant, but that wasn't the case here. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. All right. And then we had just a couple of other tidbits. First one has to do with the San Diego District Attorney's Office that was disqualified in a Black Lives Matter prosecution for having made public remarks that suggested bias. The case is People versus Lastra that was issued in September of 2022. And there the Court of Appeal affirmed the trial court's recusal of the entire DA's office. Oh, sorry, I, I've been saying uh, San Diego. This looks like this was San Luis Obispo from prosecuting some Black Lives Matters protesters, holding that the extrajudicial ju comments of the district attorney might suggest that he might not prosecute the matter in a neutral fashion, given his demonstrated antipathy to the BLM movement. Instead, the California Attorney General's office will be the ones prosecuting the cases. The DA's comment that got the office into trouble was made to a Facebook group in explaining the DA's decision to prosecute. In the opinions description, the DA's Facebook post stated that the DA claimed, indicated that the DA claimed that the BLM movement, quote, is domestic terrorism, quote, downright evil, no brains or souls, end quote, and it posted pictures of a BLM billboard burning in flames. The other statement that was cited in the opinion was by Candace Owens and one Tony Perkins, two people with whom the DA had appeared at certain events. But I had noted that the opinion did not make it clear why these statements would be imputed to the entire DA's office. The Court of Appeal noted that in affirming, it was deferring to the trial court's factual determinations. Yeah. You know, interesting. I had a few thoughts about this. One is could future uh, members of the BLM who are being prosecuted, not necessarily for being involved in a BLM pro protest, but just their well-known BLM members, could they also seek to recuse the entire DA's office in a future criminal prosecution? I wonder that. And then I also, you know, I wonder how much of the outcome of this was due to just the deference of the court of appeal saying, we're going to defer to the trial court. Is it a better position to look at these issues? And also this week, there was news out of Florida. It kind of reminded me of this case that the Florida governor you know, had fired an attorney general who had uh, publicly proclaimed he was not going to enforce anti-abortion laws. That AG has now filed a lawsuit against Governor DeSantis. You know, this weird blurred line between statements made by prosecutors and how they come back and bite you in terms of lawsuits or in this case, having your whole office recused. 
Yeah. Yeah, that is interesting. It's a matter of the personal becoming political, vice versa. How much, you know, obviously a lot of these actors you know, do have opinions on these matters. Sometimes you like to think, well, I'd like to know what their opinions are rather than them being quiet about it. And I just, we never get to find out their motivations. Sometimes it's, it may seem refreshing that they say what they feel. I know there's you know, sometimes we like to, to have the warts out in the open so we don't find, find out about them on the sly. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. You know, I think that's all we had to cover, Jeff, this week. Yeah. Another quick thank you to our podcast sponsor, Case Text. For listeners of our podcast, they can get a 25% lifetime discount if they go to casetext.com slash C-A-L-P. That's casetext.com slash CALP you'll get a 25% lifetime discount. And if you have suggestions for future episodes, we are coming up on the 2023 season of the California Appellate Law Podcast. If you have suggestions for what we should be covering, what guests we should have, what topics we should be talking about on the podcast, please email us at info at calpodcast.com. But as always, our upcoming episodes, will be talking about more tips on how to lay the groundwork for an appeal when preparing for trial. All right. See you next time. You have just listened to the California Appellate Podcast a discussion of timely trial tips and the latest cases and news coming from the California Court of Appeal and the California Supreme Court. For more information about the cases discussed in today's episode, our hosts, and other episodes, visit the California Appellate Law Podcast website at calpodcast.com. That's calpodcast.com. Thanks to Jonathan Caro for our intro music. Thank you for listening, and please join us again 